1: Partially Examined Life Precognitions introduce philosophical topics for upcoming episodes to give you a few weeks to do the reading yourself. They also serve as quick, standalone summaries of the work. You can read more about these topics, get the works we cover, and listen to Partially Examined Life Conversations at partiallyexaminedlife.com. This is Philosophy Bro, speaking from an undisclosed but totally awesome location. Elizabeth Anscombe was born in 1918 in Ireland, but she spent most of her life on what our British listeners might call the mainland, but what the rest of us would rather call a slightly bigger island. She finished her undergrad at Oxford in 1941, and from 1942 to 1945, did a postgraduate fellowship at Cambridge under Wittgenstein. After that, she was awarded a research fellowship at Oxford that she stayed at until 1970, It was during this research fellowship that she translated much of Wittgenstein's work into English, and also accomplished what is widely considered her own most important work. In 1970, she was awarded a full professorship at Cambridge, where she remained until 1986. Anscombe was an incredibly talented philosopher, whose work was both highly ambitious and very influential. The readings we'll cover include two essays, Modern Moral Philosophy and War and Murder, and paragraphs 22 to 27 of her monograph, Intention. 1957's Intention is widely considered the founding text of the philosophy of action, and it set out to answer the question, what does it mean to say that some act was intentional? When we say someone intentionally did something, what do we mean? Like many questions in philosophy, it sounds like a simple question, until you think about it for like two fucking seconds. For example, our reading centers on paragraphs 23 to 27, which are about a thought experiment in which a gardener, in the course of his ordinary duties, pumps some water into a cistern that supplies a house's drinking water. It's a quaint and super British example, but roll with me for a second here. A gardener is refilling a house's water supply from a larger water supply. Let's say it's a well and a lake. So he's refilling this well from a lake, but the thing is, Someone has poisoned the lake with a poison that works so slowly, you can't detect it until it's too late. Now the house whose water he's poisoning is frequently used by Nazi officers, and they're going to die, and the man who poisoned the lake has calculated that once these Nazis die, someone else is going to come into power. And these new people will be good and just men who will run the absolute best government ever. The guy who poisoned the lake tells all this to the gardener. So the gardener is pumping poisoned water into the well, and he knows it. There's a lot going on there, and there are several different ways to describe what's happening. There's the incredibly literal, he's just flexing his arm muscles, and the more casual, he's doing his job, or he's pumping water. But we might also more dramatically describe the gardener's actions as he's poisoning Nazis is what he's doing. And all of those descriptions are technically correct. Still, some of them seem more correct than others. If we were to ask the gardener what he's doing, and he said, bending and unbending my arms, we wouldn't exactly be thrilled with that answer. For Anscombe, a person's intention is their answer to the question, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? So while the gardener is both poisoning Nazis and doing his job, which of those he intends will depend on which he answers with when we ask, why are you doing what you're doing? This raises important ethical questions, including why are you doing a thing that you know will poison people? And the example is clearly constructed to have those ethical components on purpose. Why bring Nazis into it if you just wanted to chat? Still, Anscombe refrains from discussing ethics throughout the book. She's clearly concerned with establishing a conception of intentionality that's applicable to ethical cases without necessarily getting into the discussion of what's right or wrong. One reason for this comes out in 1958's Modern Moral Philosophy, which took aim at no less than the entirety of modern ethics. Clue is in the title, I guess. Anscombe has three theses in modern moral philosophy, the first of which is that we lack an adequate moral psychology to even do ethics. We simply don't know enough about what a person does when he acts to begin saying how a person should act. She seems to think that intention was just the beginning of that work. And you might find yourself thinking, too soon to do ethics. Aren't we like two centuries of modern moral philosophy deep at this point? And to that, Anscombe says, sure, but none of that is any good at all. That's not really an exaggeration. Anscombe spends only about a paragraph each dismissing Butler, Bentham, Mill, and Kant. She spends longer on Hume, but calls him an incredibly clever sophist. She lumps a century of British moral philosophy together and dismisses it all at once. Which leads us to her second thesis that the moral sense of ought doesn't actually contain any force. With Hume, she notes the difficulty of moving from is-statements, descriptions of the world, like I'm not wearing pants, to ought-statements, claims about how the world should be. I ought to put pants on. Everyone seems to agree that just because I don't have pants on, it doesn't follow that I have an obligation to put pants on. To get that, we need a special premise that says we have an obligation to wear pants. But Anscombe argues that this special conception of ought, which is tied up with notions of obligation or of being bound to do something, comes from the influence of divine law standpoints on moral philosophy, especially Christianity's divine law conception of ethics. Modern ethical philosophy is an attempt to create a secular morality, doing away with divine law but it still uses concepts from divine law like obligation and duty, and describes specific acts as illicit or wrong, like sins without the metaphysical or theological component. For Anscombe, it doesn't make sense to use those words stripped of the original context, and for her, it's no wonder that modern moral philosophers have struggled to justify morality. They're trying to make sense of concepts divorced from their original context. Her response to this is to defend an Aristotelian notion of ought, where what we ought to do is just whatever permits us to flourish. There's no special obligation to do anything any more than a sunflower has a moral duty to seek the sunlight. It's just what needs to happen. In that sense, our flourishing is an objective fact, in the same way that whether or not I'm wearing pants is an objective fact. And part of the importance of coming up with an adequate moral philosophy for Anscombe is understanding what it is we need to do in order to flourish, and how our actions help or hurt our flourishing. Her third thesis is that British moral philosophy, from Sedgwick to G.E. Moore, is all the same, in that it makes the same mistake. Here Anscombe gives us the word consequentialism, which she uses to refer to any ethical philosophy that makes something right or wrong in virtue of its consequences. That might be, in a utilitarian sense of weighing pleasure and pain, but it might also involve weighing competing values against each other, though prohibition against murder, say, against the possibility of saving millions of lives. For Anscombe, this too is beholden to a divine law conception of morality, but gets away from it. A divine prohibition on murder means precisely don't murder, regardless of how tempting it looks. Taking prohibitions against murder and weighing them against other prohibitions is a contradiction for her that's at the root of all consequentialist ethical philosophies. One option from here is to return to divine law conceptions of ethics and return moral force to words like ought and duty. But Anscombe doesn't think we need to do that, and she points backwards to Aristotelian virtue ethics as an alternative. Here the importance of moral psychology once again comes up. How can we draw the connection between a man doing justice and a man being just? And Anscombe's fingerprints are all over the contemporary reinvigoration of virtue ethics. To sum everything up, Anscombe thinks we lack a sufficient account of what it means to intend something, and that account is really important to ethics, because any ethical philosophy that focuses just on features of an individual act will fail. She thinks we need to return to an ethics that takes into account the connection between the act and the person doing it. Intention is a first step in establishing that connection, that moral psychology. Until that work is completed, it doesn't make sense to do ethics. We literally just don't even have the tools to do it. And trying to do ethics now will get us into the same hot water that apparently the last 200 years got us into. As I've said before, Anscombe is a talented and ambitious philosopher. And this is the shallow end of her work, which could be both dense and contentious. She had much to say in great detail. Please join us as we go deeper into her work, discussing exactly how she dismisses centuries of work before her and establishes new areas for those who follow. Afterwards, you can take part in the discussion at PartiallyExaminedLife.com.